He still loves you in Jesus. God knows every word you've ever muttered to yourself, and he still loves you in Jesus. God knows every conversation you've ever had with someone about someone else, and he still loves you in Jesus. God knows every lustful glance, every angry grunt, every proud thought, every greedy instinct, every shade of a lie, every slothful shortcoming. God knows you and knows me completely and fully. And he sent Jesus to die for you. He gave the core of himself to rescue you. He knows you fully and he loves you freely. And nothing can be better than that. I hope you can see that this morning. Nothing is better than the beauty of God's power and grace mixed together in the person of Jesus. You know, Marianne and I have been friends now for more of our lives than we haven't been friends. Uh, we were just talking about that a few weeks ago. We've known each other for a long time. We've been married for some time now. And we're at the point, you know, where very often we can hang out with people or have dinner with our family and have entire conversations without saying a word. In fact, at the age our kids are at, that's often required. Uh, and she often will know what I'm about to say before I say it. And she can give me a look and I'll hopefully refrain <laughs> from what I was about to say. But, but even my wife doesn't know me the way God knows me. And I'm thankful for that. <laughs> Thankfully, she's a godly wife and she loves me despite what she knows about my sinfulness. But God knows me even more. And God loves us even more than even those who know us best. That's what this psalm is intending to communicate to us. It's summoning us to see the beauty of the all-knowing one. David tells us more, though. He goes on, verse 7 through verse 12, by writing about the everywhere present one. God is omniscient, we see in the beginning of the psalm, but he's also omnipresent. He's omnipresent. There's nowhere you can go where God is not. Verse 7, where shall I flee from your presence? The answer, of course, is nowhere. That's the whole tone of those next verses. That's true for every single square inch of the universe right this second. And it's always been true throughout history. Can you think about that? That's a mind blower. God is present fully right now with the Polynesian islander asleep by the ocean, in her bed by the ocean. God's present right now with the Tanzanian mother walking two miles from her house to get water in the river. God's present right now with the hedge fund manager in Manhattan in his high rise trying to get a head start on his week. God's present right now with the atheist blogger arguing that he doesn't exist. God's present right now with Muslim imams leading secret or leading daily prayers. God's present right now with Christians worshiping in secret in China. No one has ever done anything that God was not there for. When ancient Africans were painting rock art on cave walls 12,000 years ago, God was there. When King Menes founded Memphis in Egypt in 3100 BC, God was there. When Confucius was born in China 500 years before Jesus was born, God was there. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon. God was there. When Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle, God was there. When Truman decided to drop the atomic bomb in Hiroshima, God was there. God is everywhere, all the time. He's there for every single fraction of your life, no matter who or where you are. 
It helps you see the power of God, I hope. But what does it really matter for you? What does it matter for you? Well, that can be, as Isabel says, a pipe bomb. That can be a pipe bomb waiting uh, waiting to explode your view of who God is. That can actually be really bad news for you. It can also be really good news for you. It can be bad news if you're trying to run away from God. And if we're not following Jesus in faith, all of us, to one degree or another, are doing just that. If you're trying to run away from God, to escape him, this text tells us that you really can't ever do it. It's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to try to run from God in your sin and rebellion and never be able to evade him. You know, those of you that have toddlers or have had toddlers know that toddlers love but are really terrible at hide and seek, right? I mean, when our kids were toddlers, they would go to the same place every single time, right? And usually it's like next to a wall, not even in a closet, it's just like wall, thinking that you're not going to find them. And really, that's what we're doing in our efforts to run away from an omnipresent, supreme, lovely and beautiful being. What did Adam and Eve do in the garden when they rebelled against their maker and their Lord? They tried to hide from him with something as foolish as fig leaves. What did Jonah think in the boat as the waves were crashing onto the deck? I thought I could escape from this God. There's no way. There's no way. Maybe you don't even know that you're running away from God. Maybe you wouldn't define your life in that way. But you would say, I'm looking for peace. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for satisfaction from some relationship or some experience. But no relationship and no experience has given it to you yet. The reason is because you're looking for love in all the wrong places. You still haven't found what you're looking for, to quote multiple musicians in about three seconds. You're attempting to find what can only be found in God, and you're running away from him instead of to him. Francis Thompson wrote an incredible poem in the 19th century that I've used before. I'm using it again because, you know what, you probably forgot anyway. I'm not going to be so arrogant as to think you remember every illustration. Um, This is called The Hound of Heaven. And uh, let me just read you a part of that very long poem as he explains what it's like to try to run away from God. Thompson writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him and utter running laughter. Up vistas, vistaed hopes I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. What's the point? The point is stop running away. Stop running away and go back home. Trust in the one who loves you and gave himself for you because he is there. He is listening. He loves you. He's with you. Repent. Believe. This can also be very, very good news. If you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you rest in his resurrection for your own life, If you know the gospel, then nothing can separate you from God's everywhere present and undying love. That's even true at the very end of life. 
I love verse 8. David says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now that means more than David likely could have ever anticipated that it meant. Sheol is a word for the Old Testament place of the dead. It's where the dead would reside. Surely David meant at least that God is with us in death. But what the fullness of the gospel tells us is that we have a God who knows what it's like to face death. We have a God who has been through death. We have a God who has conquered death. What darkness are you facing? Don't fear. Is death staring you in the face? Don't fear. For even the darkness is not dark with him. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with the everywhere present one. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Thirdly, God is omnipotent. The all-powerful one. Verses 13 through 18. The way David expresses this in some Psalms is by reflecting on the grandeur of the heavens, as we've seen some in our series. The way David reflects on God's all-powerful nature here, though, is by focusing, by honing in on the intricacy, on the intricacy and intimacy with which he has made each and every human being. Look at what he writes. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. He goes on to say, verse 16, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, before I had lived a single one of them. Those are beautiful words, are they not? They're incredible words, are they not? God is so powerful God is so powerful that he crafts personally and particularly every single human being on the planet now, whether male or female, white, black, or brown, rich or poor, young or old. And because of that, we have a strong foundation, a strong foundation for the truth that every single human who has ever lived is valuable, valuable. To the all-powerful one. Every single human has worth and dignity because every single human was crafted by God in God's own image. We can't get through these verses. We can't get through these verses, at least I'm not going to do it, without applying them to the great evil of our age, the taking of life of the unborn, the practice of abortion, And let me tell you, I know that our church comes from multiple perspectives on all kinds of issues. But brothers, sisters, friends, can I tell you that the reason that followers of Jesus oppose the practice of abortion is not because of some political stunt. It's not because of some desire to increase the the factions of our society. It's because... As clearly as anywhere else in the Bible, we see here that the reason we oppose this practice is for theological reasons. We oppose abortion and we call it evil, not because of a political statement we want to make, but in submission to who God really is. God makes people. God makes them in the womb. 
That phrase, in the depths of the earth, it almost certainly refers to the womb as well. Think about it. Even before mom knows, even before mom knows that there is a living human child inside of her, the all-powerful God is forming that person with love and compassion. God is intimately involved in every human life from the day we are conceived. It's so amazing to think that the rugged physicality of things like sex and pregnancy and birth create, by God's grace, eternal and immortal human souls. So we oppose abortion on these grounds. We oppose it on the grounds that every human is valuable. And that before birth, God is involved deeply with all of us. So, friends, can I tell you, in love, unborn fetuses are not lumps of prenatal tissue. Unborn fetuses are not merely an extension of mom's body. Unborn fetuses are not disposable clumps of cells with no human rights. Unborn fetuses aren't even just unborn fetuses. They're people. made by God and loved by God and treasured by God. So the 60 million and counting deaths by abortion since Roe v. Wade is a great tragedy. It's a horror. It's evil. And believers in Jesus oppose it not to win a political battle. In fact, I'm happy to lose every political battle. We oppose it to honor the beautiful God who intricately weaves together these beautiful children, body and soul, with life everlasting. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. And in that, he is beautiful. God is omnipresent everywhere. And in that, he is beautiful. God is all-powerful. And in that, he is beautiful. These final verses show us also, lastly, that God is the most holy one. Now, without question, these verses present a bit of a (laughs) curveball. I bet as Marianne read that, you thought, oh, that escalated quickly, David. Verse 19, verse 21, verse 23. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Oh, that you would kill the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? What's going on here? Real quick, two things, then we're done. First, David is speaking here. It's just basic biblical interpretation I want you to be aware of. David is speaking here from a different position than you and I are in currently. David is the king of Israel. And more importantly, in the context of the whole Bible, David prefigures and represents for us the person and work of Jesus himself. David is like a pre-Jesus. He's pointing us to Jesus' own perfect righteousness and justice and holiness as the final singer of this psalm. So when you read things like this in the psalms or elsewhere in the Bible, you're first and foremost to think of Jesus as being the one who fulfills these things. So it's not that we should pray that God would kill the people that hurt us. I'm not going to pray, God, I hate Oklahoma's starting quarterback. Not going to do it, right? Rather, we're to, as Jesus says, love our enemies as Jesus taught us, and leave the judgment to the greater David, to Jesus. But secondly, and practically, here's what I'm going to show you from these last verses. This psalm's sort of whole narrative helps us see that reflecting, reflecting on the beauty of God irrevocably drives us to the holiness of God. Reflecting on the character of God takes us 
pedal to the metal to the holiness of God. David, throughout this entire psalm, has been pondering and meditating on who God is. And the Holy Spirit then compels David and compels you and compels me to mirror more and more his beautiful character. That's the spirit of those final two verses, which are the most famous verses of this entire psalm. David's repeating what he said in verse 1, but here he makes it a request. He says, search me, God. Know my heart. See if there's any grievous, rebellious way in me and lead me into life. What an appropriate prayer for a Christ follower to pray. It follows the logic of the gospel. Here's the logic of the gospel. When you see by faith with eyes that can really see the beauty of God, when you see how God gives himself for us, when you see his grace mixed wonderfully with his power, when you see his love and his wisdom, and when it sinks into your souls, when it marinates for a while in your hearts, we want him. We want to be like him. We want to reflect him more. We want to be holy. We want to be pure. And so we do what David does. We repent and we believe. That's what David's saying here at the end. He's saying, help me see my sin, God, and to hate it, to turn from it, because I can't do that by myself. Help me to turn to you, God. Help me to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lead me, God. David really functionally is saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. And leading us in that prayer as well. When God has pipe-bombed your view of him, when God has exploded your view of who he really is and given you a picture of his radiant beauty, this is the response. Run to him. Pursue him. Love him. Do you want to pray that prayer? I mean, really. (laughs) Do you want to ask God to search you? That can be a really scary thing to pray. And it can be a really powerful thing to pray. In a sense, the answer to that is yes uh, and no. Yes and no. Outside of Jesus, you do not want God to search you. You do not want God to search you outside of Jesus because the hideousness of what he will uncover is beyond even your own ability to understand. You are worse than you think. Welcome to Christchurch. You're worse than you think. But if you connect to Jesus Christ, if you believe in his deep love, if you take hold of the life that Jesus offers you freely, you can ask. You can ask this of God. Search me and know me. And you can know that he will lead you into greater holiness, into greater Christ-likeness, which is to say, into greater peace, into greater joy, into greater hope, into greater life. Seek him and you will live. Run away from him and you will lose everything. If you build your life around the things that this world offers, you're going to lose it all. But if you build your life around God, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, that great master teacher, you get him and everything else thrown in. Listen to Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, as we close. He writes, The very beholding of God is a transforming sight. A man cannot look upon the love of God and of Christ and the gospel, but it will change him to be like God in Christ, 
Seeing the holiness of God will transform us to be holy. Seeing the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, this, this will transform us to love God. My prayer is that God will explode. Explode into your life a transcendent view of who he in his core really is. And that seeing his beauty, you will chase after him and nothing else. Let's pray.